This is KZFR 90.1 Chico, and you are listening to Ecotopia, a weekly program exploring ecosystems, environmental, social, and technological. I'm Susan Judy. I'm Stephen Judy. This afternoon, we'll be talking with Cherie Chastain and Molly Marcusen. Cherie is chair of the Chico Climate Action Commission, which is overseeing the update of Climate Action Plan for the city of Chico. Molly is an associate planner for the city of Chico, is on the staff liaison for the Climate Action Commission. The opinions voiced on Ecotopia do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of KZFR, its staff, volunteers, board of directors, or under... Thank you for having us. Have we got you? Yeah, hi, thanks for having us. Okay. Before we get to the specific proposals of the Climate Action Commission, uh, tell us what the goal is for the update of the Climate Action Plan. What targets for carbon emission reduction are you trying to reach and by when? And maybe when you first speak, you could identify yourself so our listeners can recognize your voices. Hi, yeah, this is uh, Molly Markison speaking. Um, So the Climate Action Plan update will provide a basis for prioritizing budgeting and implementing and monitoring greenhouse gas emissions within the city of Chico. The new carbon emission reduction targets um, are reducing our emissions 40% below 1990 levels by 2030 and net zero emissions by 2045. Okay, so we have a slight technical glitch there. Susan is now back with us. I didn't hear anything you said, so... But <laughs> okay, it was about the, the goals for climate emissions by uh, the various years, so... Okay, thank you. Now we're more combobulated than we were. You've come up with a number of proposals for emission reduction. How did the commission choose and prioritize these particular proposals? Hi, and this is Sheree. Um, yeah, it, it's been a long process actually of identifying measures for emissions reduction. Um, We started about a year ago doing some community outreach groups uh, when we had the sustainability task force, um, connecting with different stakeholders in the community and starting to gather the beginnings of ideas for reduction measures. And that was given to the consultant when they came on board last spring. and as we talked about previously, in that time, we transitioned from a task force to a commission. Right. And so that has continued with our consultant doing um, community outreach to get feedback from people in the community. Because, again, this is a community plan. Um, this is for us, and this will ultimately be all of our roadmap to carbon neutrality. Um, so getting bits and pieces from the community on what we wanted to see, and then the consultant kind of pulled all of that together. And the commission and city staff had a chance to review that and provide feedback. Um, We did another public outreach session a few months ago to um, get some more feedback from the community. And we're getting ready to launch into our second round of community and public outreach with some more specific measures, which we'll talk more about tonight. Yes. And let's do that. Let's talk about the proposals, um, the rationales, their impact, their feasibility. Um, The first uh, proposal is to require new construction to be all electric. Um, Can you talk about the value of that? Why was that a priority? Yeah, so um, the 
Yeah, this is Molly speaking again. Uh, so this proposal really takes advantage of the increasingly popular renewable energy that we're seeing um, throughout California. As of 2020, all new homes in California are required to have solar. Um, so by not putting in that natural gas infrastructure, you're essentially eliminating the need to utilize a non-renewable energy source. Um, the proposed measure will also uh, support EV adoption by providing the infrastructure needed for home charging in these new housing developments. So when the developer or contractor is building a home, that EV charging conduit will be built into that, into the home. Right. Um, other benefits include lower home uh, homeowner costs, improved air quality, natural gas burning in the home is actually not clean. Um, you are having some sort of emissions that are being burnt inside your home that you're breathing in. Um, and enhanced building safety. Um, but obviously this is, you know, one of our more scary, um, I guess you could say the, the community perceives it as scary. This is a big undertaking. Um, a lot of people, you know, have these notions that this is going to be very costly. And um, we did actually have a building electrification stakeholder workshop in early October where we sat down with um, some developers, like the Realtors Associations with our consultant and really kind of had a candid conversation about this and, you know, what they were worried about and kind of had um, our technical experts there to hopefully, you know, kind of give them a peace of mind. Um, All electric new construction is typically less expensive for contractors to build. And it's also cheaper for homeowners to live in when coupled with high energy appliances and and solar is also installed. And since this is all for new construction, you can already expect that solar infrastructure to already be on the home since that is a mandate of the California Building Code. Right. Um, one of the things that I was curious about about that particular one is that um, can, can you judge or can builders judge the right number of panels to have on a house to make it? work as an all-electric house and that and i do see how that might be easier if you plan from the beginning this is going to be alternative energy but can they calculate that we got solar panels and we're told they were sufficient for our house and they turned out not to be at all so we have very high and so we put in all electric because of that Uh, um, but our solar panels aren't sufficient yeah, that's, that's interesting. You know, I, I'm really, I, I'm not a homeowner and haven't really gone through that process and don't know a whole lot about in, like installing solar. I would imagine that that would need to be a priority, though, and something that they're taking into account. Um, and I do believe that there is now, um, like, energy calculations that need to take place prior to building the home. And I'm wondering if maybe that, a part of that energy calculation, maybe that's where they're figuring out how many panels you need to be able to be 100% solar or 90% solar, whatever that target number is. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. One of the uh, projects that Joe Biden is talking about is employing lots of people in the green industry. Are solar installers primarily local, regional? To, when developers come in, uh, do they have their own crews? I'm just curious about how this might benefit the Chico economy as well as benefiting the homeowner. From my understanding, you know, there's there's several different large companies that work regionally. 
Um, I, you know, I, I'm in the, I'm not really working in the building department, so I don't get to, to have these conversations with a lot of our solar mm-hmm. um, installation folks. Um, but I do know that there are several very large companies that essentially send out their, you know, their workers regionally. Um, so I do think that this could, you know, potentially have some economic mm-hmm. development value for the city in the future. Good. Molly, I'll go ahead and jump in on that as well. In in my experience uh, with solar, um, there are these lots of large companies that tend to be kind of almost nationally distributed, but they do work with regional subcontractors to do work. Um, so when you have a large development or a very large project, it might be initiated and designed, and the permitting might run through the large company. Um, but a lot of times the work on the ground is done by a subcontractor, which would be, you know, one of our local installers. Um, again, that's for like a large scale project. We're talking the small scale projects, you know, an individual homeowner having solar put on their home as a retrofit. Those are, are typically more localized projects and more localized work, which means that is you know, people living in that community doing that work rather than folks driving from outside to do that work. The second proposal seems a little bit harder, and actually the third, I think, as harder too. That your the commission is proposing that um, that people ex- electrify existing residential buildings, and then uh, the third recommendation is that they electrify municipal buildings. And the first one seems, yeah, that cost is built into the cost of the home, and it's not a higher cost than um, what a home might cost, and maybe even less um, by other uh, energy um, uses. But these two seem that they would be very expensive for the homeowners and for the um, for the for the city. Well, I'll jump in and history, and and I'll kind of start to address the residential, and then maybe Molly can jump in and, and address the municipal side. But you know, we're taking a phased approach to this, so you know, and and again, just to reiterate, all of these are proposed measures. We are right. seeking input from the community. None of this has been set in stone. Um, so just making sure that that clarification has been made. So the way that this measure is currently proposed is phased, where the first phase is incentivizing replacement. So again, if we're talking about existing residential buildings, um, you know, incentivizing homeowners or property owners to replace natural gas water heaters or stoves with an electric option. Um, and that can come with the form of utility rebates, or we can find other ways to possibly incentivize that. If anybody has ideas, we'd love to hear them. Um, and then the second phase of that would then be to start requiring it as part of system failure. So as the water heater, a natural gas water heater fails, that it becomes replaced with an electric water heater. Or an HVAC unit, you know, more typically it's a heater on that uh, piece of equipment. As that fails, it becomes it's replaced with an electric option. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these appliances that we're talking about, you know, water heaters have, a, have an incredibly long life, as do HVAC systems. So, this would not be a blanket. Everybody changes all at once. It would be more of a phase incentivizing those who want to do it to start, 
And then as equipment starts to fail, kind of slowly replacing that with more electric options. Mm -hmm. And who would provide the incentives? Is that the city or are there state uh, or even federal rebates? Yeah, those are still questions that we need to answer. Um, There are some utility rebates. So PG&E offers some rebates for some of these appliance replacements. Um, There might be some other localized grant options that we could tap into. But, you know, again, we'd love to hear suggestions on how we might be able to incentivize or finance these things. Mm -hmm. And this is Molly's quickly um, something that, you know, our our last climate action plan did not have um, that that this climate action plan will have is um, funding and finances resources. We have um, a part of our consultant, um, they have a sub-consultant called HIP, um, Human Impact Profit, and um, HIP will actually go out and find a bunch of different incentives, rebates, and programs mm. that will help, um, that we can utilize and share with the community to to reach these goals. So we're not just going to have a bunch of measures and say, let's figure it out. We're going to have funding and financing strategies built into the Climate Action Plan so the city can achieve these goals and also then to share with the community. Would passive solar be part of the, the package, either for home heating or water heater, preheaters, that sort of thing? Yeah, we, you know, we still haven't really had a chance to look at a lot of those strategies, but I would imagine that that, that would be a part of the strategy mm-hmm. um, outreach outline that HIP will be sending over. And Molly, you were going to talk about electrifying municipal buildings. Um. Yeah. So, you know, as Sheree mentioned, like it is, it is will likely be a phased approach. Um, right. It's going to be a, a long process that will take place over many years. Uh, the goal is to have um, all municipal buildings um, be electric by 2045. Right. Um, so in order to, to get there, um, we need to create some sort of electrification plan. Um, that would require, you know, any new facility that's going to be built to be 100% electric and then also contain policy on phasing out natural gas in existing facilities. We don't really have, um, you know, we don't know what this plan is going to look like, but I would imagine it would be similar to those phases where, you know, if we're um, replacing HVAC systems or remodeling 50% of a municipal building, then we're going to need to um, put in that electric infrastructure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the fourth proposal is also focusing on um renewable energy um of the it advocates providing 100 percent renewable energy to the community and all of all of the first four proposals point to the need for renewable energy that's the focus of all four of them so what is the status of renewable energy now do we have <coughs> Sorry, renewable energy available now, or do we need to be developing that at the same time we're working toward electrifying everything? And would that be solar or wind or both or more? Both and all of it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, the state of California has set uh, minimum standards for renewable energy within the grid mix, and that's the renewable energy portfolio standard. Um, recent legislation has been passed, SB 100 passed, that escalates that. Um, the state currently requires, I think it's about 35% renewable energy within grid mix for all utility providers in the state of California. That escalates to require to be 60% by 2030 and then 100% by 2045. 
So on target with this climate action plan, the state has moved those mandates. So our electricity should be 100% renewable by then. Now at the local level, we're working to establish um, the Butte Choice Energy, which would be our form of community choice aggregation or our mm-hmm. agency right. for community choice aggregation, mm-hmm. which gives our community the ability to source the contracts for the power that we are purchasing. So that could come in our region, most likely from solar, uh, which is going to have to be combined with some sort of storage capacity. Uh, right. We could source from wind potentially in, in different areas. Um, that timeline for Butte Choice Energy has somewhat stalled, and I, and I think they're slightly delayed from the initial timeline, um, but that project is still moving forward. So hopefully as the Climate Action Plan rolls out, um, Butte Choice Energy continues to roll out and we can source um, more locally supplied renewable energy. But like I said, the state is really driving this renewable energy progression. And and how is the technology for storage now? I've heard really mixed things about um, our ability to store solar. It's, It's progressing quickly. I mean, the technology, because I think everybody recognizes that with any renewable technology that we have, we have to combine it with storage. Um, things like wind and solar are intermittent, and right. we need buffering capacity for when we need to store or expel as needed as the demand rises. So the technology is progressing with the demand, um, and they're moving along, I think, pretty well together. Um, you know, the state has recognized the importance of this, and so they're heavily incentivizing both technology development but also deployment of these technologies. Um, so the incentives are there, which is driving um, better technology to continue to hit the market. Right. That sounds all really promising. I wanted to throw in a quick oh, okay. one. Is there any pressure for nuclear or uh, improved gas-fired electrical generation as part of the not your plan but the overall state plan i'm just wondering if there's people are pushing for that along with solar and wind well of course there are certain you know private interest parties that are pushing for for certain things nuclear is is tapering off in the state of california mm-hmm. and you know the the utilities the large investor owned utilities are starting to divest from from nuclear quite a bit um, natural gas is pretty steady. I, I don't see a strong increase or a decrease, you know, um, across the state that seems to be pretty, pretty steady, but it's also, you know, um, a large part of our industry in California, which is something that we're going to have to reconcile with these renewable energy targets is that, you know, it's a big part of our economy. Mm-hmm. And it is a fossil fuel. So it's something we'll have to wrestle with. Um, Let's take a short break and we'll come back and talk about more of the proposals in the updated Climate Action Plan for the City of Chico. Our guests are Cherie Chastain, Chair of the Chico Climate Action Commission, and Molly Marcusen, Associate Planner for the City of Chico. This is Ecotopia on KZFR 90.1. This is Ecotopia on KCFR 90.1 in Chico. We're talking with Cherie Chastain. She is the chair of the Chico Climate Action Commission and Molly Marcusen, associate planner for the city of Chico. The commission has been working on the update of the Chico Climate Action Plan, and they will be making their proposals available to the public soon. We're talking about proposals 
um, that reduce Chico's greenhouse gas emissions over the next 10 to 25 years in order to meet the state's zero emission targets by 2045. So one of your proposals is to implement the Chico Bicycle Master Plan. What's the plan? How will it help? What? How will it add to the bike trails we already have in the community? Yeah, this is Sheree. Um, this is one that I'm particularly excited about, probably just because it's near and dear to my heart. But um, you know, transportation is the number one source of greenhouse gas emissions for the city of Chico. Okay. And so we really need to start to get people out of their vehicles and using alternative modes of transportation. We're so lucky in the city of Chico to be such a bike-friendly community. Um, but there's a lot of work that we need to do to be even more bike-friendly, um, investing in safe routes to schools so our, our kids can commute to school easily and safely on a bike, um, investing in more connected infrastructure uh, that allows for better commuting for large commute centers and large employers, um, looking at, you know, um, uh, street safety and crossings and uh, a really interconnected bike network within the city of Chico. Mm-hmm. So there's a group, uh, the Bike Ped Work Group, which brings together stakeholders from very diverse backgrounds in the city of Chico to start to brainstorm ideas, solutions, to um, start to put the bike plan um, to work. And this is going to be... Um, Partnerships with community members, um, you know, institutions like Chico State will play a big role in creating this connectivity and safe network. Um, so really, we're just going to bring the stakeholders together. Um, there's a lot of grants that we've already received for projects like Bikeway 99, mm-hmm. uh, the Comanche Creek Greenway. Um, there's a lot more. There's several projects. I can't even keep track of them all in the works that we've already received funding for that will um, go directly to building more and better and safer bike paths within the city of Chico. And it's exciting at the moment that the bike path up near Whitmire Chevrolet is just about finished. uh, To extend the 99 bikeway, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's been a long time coming. And, um, you know, bikeway 99 is almost complete, which is super exciting. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Another proposal is to improve the ZEV infrastructure, the zero emission vehicle infrastructure, to allow for a 25% shift from combustion vehicles to electric vehicles by 2030. What does that, sorry, I don't know, what does that involve? Um, yeah, this is Molly. Um, so the city <clears throat> has set a goal that is in line with state targets and aims to reach 23% um, electric vehicle adoption by 2030. Um, what we need to be focusing on is putting in the much needed infrastructure to support this goal. This will require approximately 950 new public charging stations to meet the forecasted demand in Chico by 2030. Um, I think, you know, this measure coupled with improving our bike ped infrastructure will be critical in reducing our transportation emissions, which is our largest um, sector right. source of emissions within the city. Right. And, it, I mean, uh, uh, there really is a need for us to have more electric vehicles, but many people don't have the means mm-hmm. to buy a new car. So. We have lots of minds to change about ZEVs when big trucks are really trendy and, 
you know, people don't have a lot of money. So, um, I mean, I think it's it's a great incentive to have uh, the infrastructure to support ZEVs. Are there ideas about how to get more people into electric cars? Well, you know, I really think that, um, you know, so our governor recently uh, signed an executive order that um, requires right. all new cars and passenger trucks to be zero emissions by 2035. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this is really going to change the car buying industry for Californians. Um, you know, I, I think that right now it is, you know, we, I think that we're going to be looking at when you're going to, to buy a car, there's going to be more affordable options and hopefully that market over time will change so it's, it is more affordable for people um, but I think that that's just the way the state is going and and people are going to have to kind of when going to buy new cars they're going to they're going to have to choose a, a more electric or sustainable version um, or option because that is you know simply what our state is requiring right now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do you see any movement towards smaller vehicles when we read the paper? We're kind of appalled by the size of the trucks that are for sale for <laughs> seventy six to eighty thousand. I don't know where people get the money for that, but if we could all downsize both the combustion engines and the EVs, the EVs that would get more mile to the charge if for a smaller, lighter car, and these things, if everybody went to them, would be safer than driving around now when you might get hit by a truck. Just your your thoughts generally on size of vehicles and whether that may change. Yeah, you know, I, I really think it, it will, and I think it can, it has been changing. You know, you're seeing people who who have typically drove trucks um, buying, you know, commuter cars that they're driving in every day, but still keeping that truck to, you know, do their, you know, perhaps they work on a farm and they need, and they need a bigger vehicle. But I think we are seeing that trend change to where people are, you know, wanting to have those smaller cars. They're faster. They get better um, gas mileage or, you know, charge mileage. Um, and I think, you know, a big thing for for people here in the rural North State is there just isn't that infrastructure. It's scary. What if you run out of a charge um, right. and, you, you know, you're in a town that doesn't have that infrastructure? Right. And I think when we see that infrastructure being put in, it's going to make people feel more comfortable getting into these electric vehicles knowing they'll have somewhere safe to charge. All right. All right. Um, another proposal is to, and I'm curious about the partnerships you have going here too, um, with what you've been working on in that way, working with waste haulers and other stakeholders to meet the goals of SB 1383 and divert 75% of organic waste from the landfill through an expansion of composting services and edible food waste diversion, how what is the impact of organic waste on climate change and uh, carbon emissions? The impact of organic waste being discarded in landfills is incredible. It's substantial. Um, it results in, in the generation of methane, which is approximately 25 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. Landfills are a significant source of methane because people are discarding of organic material, which is breaking down anaerobically, releasing this methane. So I think it's a very under-talked about component within climate change is, is addressing organic diversion. Um, and not just for the greenhouse gas emissions, but 
um, you know, roughly a third of the food that people consume is discarded. And yet there are so many people in our community, and this has been highlighted through the pandemic, that are food insecure. So a big part of this legislation is recovering food and getting it to the people who need it. Um, Number one priority is if it, if food is edible, recover it and find a way to get it to the people who need it. So and that's going to be a, a big effort within the community. And I know that there's a lot of partners in that'll be needed in that process. So how how does that happen? How do, how do you um, get that recoverable food? Is it stuff that grocery stores throw out when it's past its due date or whatever? Sometimes, yeah, grocery stores are, are a big source of that food. Um, restaurants are a source of prepared food. Um, so, you know, especially, well, when we when all the restaurants were open. <laughs> yeah, right, um, exactly. <laughs> you know, there there is this uh, mindset that people are afraid to donate food because they're worried that if it makes somebody sick, that they could be personally liable. Mm -hmm. And um, there was legislation passed in the 1990s, more than 20 years ago, uh, the Good Samaritan Law that allows, it relieves that personal liability for recovered food donations. So if a restaurant or a catering business um, donates prepared food, um, they are relieved of personal liability of anything that might happen to them on that because food recovery and food insecurity are so important within communities globally, but also here in Chico. And are distribution uh, methods available now, or is that something that is yet to be developed for recovering food? They are available, but they they need more support. They need more resources, and they need to be um, developed much more further. You know, the university has a program, our basic needs pro- program, and our wildcat food pantry that is working to get right. food to our food insecure students. Um, and they have done incredible work over the last several years, but that involves building partners and finding funding. And so we need to make sure that we're investing in these organizations that are doing this work to connect excess food with the people who need it. And then um, 75% of the organic waste that goes into the landfill, the idea is to get 75% of that organic waste to composting or, um, well, you already talked about the edible food um, diversion, but what's the story on composting? How How is that? That's already part of that law, right? It's part of SB 1383. It is, yeah. And, you know, this is a source of personal frustration for me because, you know, I've been pretty vocal for the last 15 years in the community that we need regional food scraps composting. I don't know why it's taken us this long to get virtually nowhere. (laughs) But SB 1383 is hopefully going to be that thorn that kind of forces the action that we need regionally. We're at a bit of a disadvantage because of how rural we are. Um, More dense urban centers uh, are much more successful in this front for a number of reasons. One, permitting, two, volume of material, and three, proximity. Um, You know, it being in a rural community, our trucks have to drive long distances to recover small amounts of food. And so it makes it economically impractical in a lot of senses to have food scraps recovery in a rural region. Um, 
So hopefully with SB 1383 that they, the state can put some resources to more specifically rural communities who struggle economically and practically to make food scrap composting work. Uh, you know, large urban centers like Sacramento, San Francisco, LA, San Diego, they all have food scraps composting. Um, so we just need to be able to catch up. And are there, um, I remember talking to, um, and I can't say your name right now, uh, the person who was responsible for at, at um, the waste management for uh, finding composting, finding places to put compost, um, uh, composting, those big composting things, composting service. Digesters. Digesters. Um, is, is, and I think that was countywide. So are, do you have partners there, too, with waste management? Are you seeking partners, I guess? Oh, we're seeking any partner we can get. <laughs> um, right. There is an anaerobic digester south of town that's independently operated from the two waste haulers that service the city of Chico. Um, you know, and, and I, I believe that they have some capacity um, to accept some more, but I don't believe that they're going to have enough capacity for all food scrap composting okay. within the city of Chico or even the region. You know, there are some people, some commercial accounts that are participating, um, you know, the Costco's and grocery stores and low, that kind uh, of thing. Um, but at the residential level, it becomes much more difficult. Yeah. All of our green waste composting that's collected residentially, the facility that it's taken to is not permitted to accept food scraps. Ah, uh, okay. So, that- so it becomes a separate collection stream unless they can collect food scraps with green waste then it becomes a bit more practical. Um, but right now, there, there's limited options on where they can actually take that material. Could we talk about your proposal for the tree canopy? You want to expand it by 700 trees by 2022, 20, 4,500 trees by 2030 to sequester carbon, decrease temperatures, save energy, improve air quality. Tell us a little more about that. Where are you going to put these trees? Molly, are you there? Do you want to take that one? <laughs> Sorry, I was talking with my mute on. Oh. <laughs> this is Molly. Uh, the, the plan right now... Um, or the I didn't mean that part. to be quite as facetious as... Uh, obviously, <laughs> there are lots of places you could put trees, but we'd just like to hear about how that program might work. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. that's very important. Um, you know, we're really trying to prioritize planting these trees in areas with the least amount of tree coverage and also planting them in our underserved or disadvantaged communities. Uh, We recently just um, received money for our Urban Forest Master Plan, and as a part of that, they did a citywide tree inventory where they went out and actually inventoried every single tree within the city of Chico, um, and it's all mapped. So we're going to be utilizing that map uh, to essentially show us where where we need more trees planted. so uh, the planting 700 trees by 2022 was actually a goal that was outlined in the Urban Forest Master Plan, and we decided to put that into the cap um, to, to codify it. Um, and then we decided to take it even far- further um, and up that up to 45,000 or 4,500 trees by 2030. Um, and one of the reasons why we really want to be planting these trees in our underserved or disadvantaged communities is because it really is going to 
provide those co-benefits like improving air quality and providing shade and reducing temperatures. Um, Our disadvantaged or underserved communities are typically those areas that have the older housing stock um, that may not have great AC or insulation. Mm -hmm. So having more tree coverage there will help to keep those houses cool during the hot summer months. And extreme heat is one of our biggest vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. to climate change. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming, too, that you've done some calculations about the water requirements of these trees, uh, which is a counterweight to the, the good they provide. Correct. Um, so a lot of, uh, so as a part of the Urban Forest Master Plan, there is like a list of um, preferred trees. Um, all the trees that get planted go through the Urban Forester. He looks at, you know, where the tree is going to be planted, um, that that tree's root system is that going to, you know, interfere with the concrete, how much water right. some of these trees are going to be required. Um, you know, it's up to the property owner to require them. And then there's also a lot of trees that are getting planted where the city actually will be paying for the watering and, and maintenance of that tree, but still need that permission from the property owner to plant them there. Right. So these are some of the major proposals of the Climate Action Commission. So what happens to these proposals next? When will people be able to see these proposals? And um, and what are you going to ask people to do? Yes, so we've talked about the eight key proposed measures here tonight. Um, the community will have access to these via a website starting Thursday. So in two days... Um, chicoclimate.com is where folks can find all of these proposed measures with a bit more detail on each one of them. It's an interactive website, and so we are, you know, in the COVID pandemic situation trying to be creative on how we can engage and solicit feedback. So this is a new interactive tool, and um, I think it's pretty cool. I think uh, this is a new way of doing things, and and I think I hope it's going to work out well. Um, but on the website chicoclimate.com, you'll be able to scroll through all of these proposed measures, and you can leave comments on them. So you can agree with them, you can disagree with them, um, you can disagree with pieces of them, you can make suggestions on how to make them stronger or more practical. Um, there's going to be a click feature where you can just click on each one of the proposed measures and leave comments in um, a comment bubble that will also be visible to the rest of the community so people can see what other people are um, communicating with regard to these measures. From here, um, we'll take feedback from the community and we'll continue to uh, refine these proposed measures so that we have something that one is practical, um, two gets us to our goals, and three is comfortable for the community. How long will so again, pe- that's chicoclimate.com. Chicoclimate.com. We will put that up on our website as well. Chicoclimate.com. Yes, starting Thursday. Starting Thursday. And how long will that be available for people to um, respond to? Molly, remind me, I think that it goes for four weeks. Is that right? Um, d- yeah, actually three weeks, December 3rd. December 3rd. December 3rd. So from now until December 3rd, uh, people will be able to give their reactions to these and, and feed you ideas, right, to give you some ideas about how uh, you could make it even better. Um, I did want to add, Susan, that um, you know, so these are eight 
team measures. Right. There's a lot of other little things, um, you know, smaller measures, sub measures to each one of these. So, um, you know, I I don't want people to think that these are the only eight things that we're going to do. Right. Okay. (laughs) And will people be able to see the other measures on this website or will they ever, will they be able to see the, the whole thing at some point? Yeah, this is on Molly. So the region, so I believe there's 93 total measures right now. Um, We we chose to talk about the um, eight largest measures. These are the really the measures that are going to get us to our goals. All the measures are important, but these are like the hardest hitting measures. Right. Um, We don't really plan to do a specific community engagement on every measure, but there's definitely opportunity for people to check in and see what these measures will look like, and that is through the Climate Action Commission. Um, Our Climate Action Commission meets the second Thursday of every month, and this is where we're going over these measures with the commission and staff and the consultants. Um, So once, you know, we, we have a draft of the Climate Action Plan or draft of all the measures, and we send that out to the commission that will also be available for the public to view. There also seems to be a growing indirect support. The Biden administration has made it clear that it is going to prioritize climate change. Uh, and that's this is in response to a, a public groundswell. People after the last four years, at least some or most of them are getting out of the climate denier phase and really see this as an existential threat. So, yeah. I would expect it'll be easier than it might have been at some points in history to get your proposals put through. Um, so what will you do with the responses? You ha- People have three weeks to um, give responses to what's on the website. What will you do with those responses? Yes, yeah, so um, this is Molly speaking again. Um, this is, you know, a community planning process, which is why public engagement and feedback is critical. Once our outreach event is over, the consultants and staff will take a look at the responses and re- revise and refine the measures as needed to address community concerns. Um, whether that's dropping, you know, or hopefully not dropping any of these measures because they're pretty critical in getting us to our goal, but refining the language or making it more clear. Um, you know, really just trying to take what the community's concerns are and addressing them and making it something that the community can feel comfortable with and they can buy into. Um, you know, we use the information gathered in our first, um, our first rounds of engagement, even our first round of engagement back when it was a, a sustainability task force mm-hmm. um, to draft mm-hmm. what, you know, what we're looking at today. Um, and now it's time to gather feedback on these measures themselves. Um, you know, ultimately, um, the final approval authority will be at the city council. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this is something that we'll have to take and present to to council and, and get that final um, authority. So do you have an anticipated date when you will be able to take a revised version to council or do you have a deadline? Um, our, our goal is to have this adopted by April. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we will likely be bringing this to council prior to April, just pr- prior to April, just to have conversations and make them, you know, aware of what we're proposing and kind of get, you know, feedback from them. Um, I don't have a date on when that will be, but the plan right now is to have this fully adopted by April. And um, Steve, 
We're just about out of time. Our guests have been Cherie Chastain and Molly Marcusen. You are both incredibly articulate and well-informed. Uh, I love the de- depth and detail of the answers you give us. Cherie is chair of the Chico Climate Action Commission, and Molly is the associate planner for the city of Chico and is the staff liaison for the Climate Action Commission. It's a really impressive document. We look forward to seeing the details on Thursday. It shows off all the hard work that's being put in by the commission. Thank you so much for being with us tonight on Ecotopia. Thank you all for having us.